Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week a continuation of my Fascism in Fiction miniseries, a miniseries that touches on how fascism and the extreme right wing affect the fiction and other media that we experience. This week, in honor of Halloween, I am talking about fascism and horror. Now, fascism has been the center of many horror movies and other pieces of horror media. I'm going to be mostly talking about movies today. And it's deeply related to horror as a genre, but it also has a complex relationship to a lot of classic horror tropes and how we think about horror movies in general. To start out, I just want to note that actual fascist movies, by which I mean movies made by fascists, are themselves not particularly related to the horror genre. The Nazi movie production system did not produce a lot of horror movies, and a lot of the movies that were particularly lauded and well-regarded and awarded in Nazi cinema were essentially movies about how great Aryan Germans are and how good they are at solving problems and how terrible all their enemies are, right? You know, straight-up propaganda movies. Italian cinema was not particularly different, although it was a little bit more independent and a little bit more artistically capable of expressing itself than German cinema. Although I also note that this is a particularly extensive field of study for many people who study fascism who are not me. And so if somebody who studies this more wants to correct me, please let me know. I'd love to hear from examples from listeners. If you want to tell me about a Nazi-produced horror film, I would love to correct myself. However, this doesn't mean that the actual ideas of fascism don't appear in horror movies, and in fact, they did a lot in the 1920s and 1930s at the time when fascism was rising. A particularly salient example is one of the earliest horror movies. This is Nosferatu from 1922. Nosferatu is an ethereal, expressionist, German silent film that is no longer really scary to contemporary viewers. Like, if you watch it, it's not going to have the same sort of, like, jump scares and special effects that will, like, freak you out in the way that a horror movie like, you know, a slasher movie from the 1970s or 80s might scare you. Instead, it's disturbing and existential in its horror. Nosferatu is a Dracula story. It's a vampire story that was told without getting the rights to the material. You know, the book Dracula was written only a couple decades before this movie was produced. Nosferatu retells the Dracula story with a vampiric German nobleman who lusts after young women who needs to suck their blood in order to achieve an eternal unholy life. Otherwise, it broadly follows the plot of Dracula. You know, a young solicitor goes to the castle and then the vampire comes to London and blah, 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 right? That kind of thing. Like Dracula itself, Nosferatu contains many anti-Semitic tropes, including the very idea of the desacralization of blood rituals and blood rites so important in Christianity, right? In medieval Christianity and in a lot of fascist depictions of Jewish people, Jewish people are derided and vilified for the so-called blood libel. That is an idea that was popularized by anti-Semitic perspectives in medieval Christianity and then in contemporary Christianity that holds Jewish people first responsible for the death of Christ and second 
which believes that Jewish people are involved in a series of satanic rituals that target young children and that potentially use their blood in order to achieve some sort of, you know, magical, mystical result, right? You know, that they're using it for some sort of right. So if you ever encounter the satanic panic or people freaking out about like satanic rituals that are happening secretly, that's an old anti-Semitic trope. And Nosferatu and the Dracula myth itself, like the very mythology around vampires, is deeply involved in this. It's essentially connected to this anti-Semitic trope. The idea of a secretive person who can hide and look like anybody else, but his true form is, you know, twisted and disgusting, and he needs to live off the blood of innocence, uh, young, innocent Christian children. Nosferatu's image in the film also distinctly resembles and was modeled after certain Jewish caricatures popular in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century, which would feed directly into how the Nazis taught people that Jewish people looked and acted. Long after the defeat of fascist Germany and fascist Italy, fascism had a big part to play in how people thought about horror. And by this point, we're talking mostly about horror cinema produced in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Lots of times, fascism is used to get some laughs in a horror movie. If you've ever seen a horror movie and have had a good time in it, you know that there's, you know, there's sort of like broadly two types of horror movies. One is supposed to actually earnestly, like, freak you out. It's supposed to be truly disturbing and awful and disgusting. And the other kind is supposed to be kind of like fun and kooky and, you know, maybe give you a good scare, but you might laugh at it later. And that's the point of a horror movie, right? You know, is that that you get to laugh in the face of danger. Fascism provides an opportunity for both these kinds of horror movies, and I'm going to be talking about both of them. So one example in which fascism becomes a sort of like joke, uh, a kind of Nazi exploitation or fash exploitation, would be Ilse, the She-Wolf of the SS, a 1975 movie out of Canada. This is a sub-subgenre, a, a, a sort of prison exploitation movie in which a sexy female Nazi, an SS officer, runs a sexy prison camp that she uses for sexual experiments. This is a classic grindhouse movie which plays off of BDSM tropes alongside the protagonist, Ilsa, running around in a Nazi uniform, attacking people, sexually assaulting them, and then murdering them. Ilsa the She-Wolf of the SS lives on in popular culture as a sort of like twisted feminist icon, which also draws attention to the fact that horror movies are often deeply involved in sexual politics, you know, in policing people's sexuality. I am certainly not the first guy with a podcast to tell you about how slasher movies are deeply involved in policing teenage sexuality, right? There are many number of other Nazi exploitation movies that don't specifically deal with sexuality, but which are about using Nazi tropes in order to gain a sort of like, you know, disturbed chuckle from the audience. There is a whole subgenre of movies in which Nazi zombies are resurrected or found, right? Here we have a joke about the idea that the Nazis are still in some way haunting Europe. You know, there are Nazis out there haunting Europe, specifically Eastern Europe or the far northern reaches of Europe where like, you know, maybe they're frozen or something. And the idea is that they're ready to be woken up and they might attack us again. Often this is presented in a goofy way though, right? 
Here the Nazis are an over-the-top villain who are supposed to be laughed at in the same way that you might laugh at a slasher movie's gore. However, other ways of using Nazism and fascism in horror movies are not supposed to make you laugh. They're supposed to make you disturbed. And they're supposed to make you be able to see some of the disturbing nature of fascism and of Nazism in, a, in an artistic, and a creative way. And so they use the genre of horror in order to show the viewer and have the viewer experience some of the disturbing and disgusting nature of fascism. One example of this would be Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom. This is an Italian movie, which was based on, or sort of loosely based on, an unpublished novel, an unpublished and unfinished novel, by the Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade was a French Enlightenment author and nobleman who wrote pornographic novels and treatises, and who is also the namesake of sadism. Now, Marquis de Sade never finished this novel, and when it was finally discovered in the early 20th century, it became a sensation as a sort of, you know, disturbing novel about sexuality and sadism. Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom, is a as an intentionally, overwhelmingly graphic movie that rewrites the Saad's unfinished novel as taking place during the Salo government, which was the rump Italian state, so like a sort of like appendage of the Nazi government in Germany, a rump state of fascist Italy, ruled by Benito Mussolini after he had been broken out of Allied prison by Nazi commandos. In this film, fascism is depicted as a depraved and violent force run by depraved, violent, over-the-top elite people who kidnap everyday people and force them to undergo horrifying sexual and physical tortures. Here, fascism is not just like horrifying and brutish, it's, it's, it's depraved, it's mad. It's, it's, um, it's, it's violent to the point of being incomprehensible, literally eating itself, producing an actual hell on earth. Now you can see how the horror genre would be able to help you get at some of the horrors of fascism and be able to sort of like maybe trick a viewer into seeing something like this. At the same time, it could also be argued that this is just using a real horror in order to get at a sort of like disturbing and just like upsetting horrific vision on screen. This particular movie has in fact been banned multiple times in many countries for being much too disturbing to be seen. Other movies that, if you ask me, deal with the horrors of fascism in a much more realistic way that are both true to the horror film genre and also to the truth and reality of fascism itself include, for example, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth uses dark fantasy tropes and other horror tropes as a way to get to the horrors of the growth of fascism in one's community. Pan's Labyrinth tells the story of a young woman who is growing up as the fascists are taking over her country of Spain. Her mother has taken a fascist, a phalangist, as a romantic lover, partly as a way to sustain their family and also secretly in order to kill him because her mother is secretly a member of the resistance. And the, the daughter does not know this. She experiences this as the corruption of a, of a more pristine or at least potentially pristine world 
Republican Spain. So this subplot of the commander who takes over your mother and impregnates her with his own essence is a way to get at the, the, the horrors of how fascism destroys a community, right? The young woman in the film spends most of the movie's runtime fighting monsters that represent fascism's dangers, but ultimately are also a distraction from them, right? She, ret she retreats into this fantasy world in order to avoid the horrors that are facing her because she feels incompetent. She feels like she can't do anything about them. Now, this movie doesn't present fascists' victory as inevitable. Eventually, the resistance fighters are able to win at least a small, localized victory against the fascists. But the movie does tell us that the world is corrupted. You know, the fascists are here, and the old, idyllic, if not perfect, but at least different, and perhaps in its own way, more pure world of the fairies is gone. It is dying. And the movie lets us know that that is certainly true. Fascism in the movie is a horrific force and is here to stay, fighting even the monsters. Perhaps the most chilling horror movie about fascism is not exactly a horror movie at all. Instead, it is a, or at least is usually understood, as a war movie. This movie is called Come and See, or at least that is the English translation of its title. It is a 1987 Soviet anti-war film about the Nazi occupation of Belarus during World War II. The movie is told from the perspective of a young man who is living under that occupation. Essentially, it depicts this young boy's entrance into the partisan resistance against the Nazis and his experience of Nazi atrocities and his witnessing of Nazi atrocities in his community. These atrocities are depicted without any filter at all. They are just shown on the screen what happened and what the Nazis did. This is done using some of the sum of the tropes of horror films. For example, the young boy's life is haunted, you know, quote unquote haunted by Nazi spy planes, Nazi reconnaissance planes that are seen in the backdrop of many shots, you know, pretending telling us that the monster is here, that the monster is coming, but you don't see the monster until finally it does appear, right? And there the Nazis play the role of a sort of cosmic horror. You know, they, they appear and, and they have no rationale. They just kill. They're just violent. They just are following some alternate logic, incomprehensible to us. But at the same time, the movie reminds us that even though their logic is incomprehensible and what it is that they're trying to do is, is just so totally alien and otherworldly, they are nonetheless people, humans just like us, who have somehow been caught up in something horrific. Thinking about fascism and Nazism in that way, as a horror that is at once real and incomprehensible, is a way to use horror movie tropes and our ways of understanding horror as a genre in order to help us get at the, the, the real terrifying core of what fascism is. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please, instead of checking out my Patreon or anybody else's Patreon, go and donate to Medicine Sans Frontières, that's Doctors Without Borders, or the Red Crescent and the Red Cross. If you are interested in getting in touch with me, check out 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H-I-S-T 
of the right. And I'm on Twitter at fascism15. I'm also on blue sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C, 15 mins of fash. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you Thursday. Thank you.